So like I said before, like three, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, they are going to explore themselves. And they are going to explore their genitalia as part of themselves. And they are discovering at that time, touching my penis feels nice. Touching my vagina feels nice. And that's it. It's an exploration of their sex organs. It's not an exploration of sex. Welcome back, everyone, to the second of three episodes in our series on sexual trauma with Dr. Karen Abdul. She's been so kind not only to share her expertise as a medical doctor and therapist, but also she's been vulnerable enough to share her story with us, painful and difficult parts of her story, in order that we might benefit and learn from her experiences and her recovery. Now, before we get into the episode today, I'm going to do something different. I wanted to define some terms of what sexual abuse is, because sexual abuse can be a very complex topic to navigate personally and within the context of the community. So defining things is important. We did define a bit of it last week. There's a bit more defining in this episode, but it is important to get our definitions right. But before I talk about that, I just want to emphasize again that talking about issues of sexual abuse, trauma, and recovery can be quite triggering. What I mean by that is when we hear about these subjects, depending on our personal experiences, we might be distressed to a point where our emotions are awry and we cannot think clearly in order to process and actually benefit from the information, but we're reintroduced to our trauma. And so we leave the situation actually feeling more stressed and more pained as a result. So if you think at any point in time, you might start to feel triggered by some of what's being talked about and you start to feel distressed, your emotions are hard to manage, then I would suggest taking it slow, taking a pause and even considering talking to a professional about what you're struggling with before listening to this. So there's no pressure. Uh, don't feel like you have to push through it. If you feel like you cannot handle some of the content that's covered, then treat yourself gently. Treat yourself kindly. So now I'm going to spend some time just making sure we're defining sexual abuse. Now, if you guys want to forward to the episode, you can look at the time marker in the show notes and you can forward straight to Dr. Karen's bit. But I think this is an important section to touch on. So I'm largely pulling from the excellent book by Dr. Dan Allender. So he's a Christian psychologist and professor at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. He wrote a book called The Wounded Heart, Hope for Adult Victims of Childhood Sexual Abuse. He's written multiple books on healing from sexual abuse and recovery. He's worked with hundreds of clients on this same issue. I would say he's a very credible source. I love his, his writings. And so he defines sexual abuse. Well, first of all, he says that there is a deep reluctance to begin the process of change by admitting that one has been sexually abused. And so oftentimes there are clear memories that we might possess. There are clear symptoms of trauma that we might possess that might hint at having gone through sexual abuse. But we tend to have a deep reluctance to admit that sexual abuse has occurred. And Dan Allender actually recounts his own experience teaching about sexual abuse 
but not identifying that the experiences that he went through would actually be considered as sexual abuse. So he talks about teaching at a seminar. And in this seminar, he was asked by several people if he'd ever been abused, and his answer was always no. But then a good friend heard him teach about this subject and asked him the same question. So he answered in the same manner, but upon further probing, he asked Dan Allender if he had ever been in a situation where he felt sexually uncomfortable, awkward, or debased. And that that was just to open up the discussion and get some more stories from him. And, you know, he said, of course. And so he, he detailed experiences where he was forced to masturbate at a camp when he was an adolescent. He recounted an experience where he was sexually assaulted at a football camp. And the friend asked him, doesn't that fit your definition of sexual abuse? And he was dumbfounded. Um, He was dumbfounded at his own reluctance to define that as sexual abuse. And so when he is defining sexual abuse, he defines sexual abuse as any physical contact or interaction, which is visual, verbal, or psychological between a child slash adolescent and an adult when the child or adolescent is being used for the sexual stimulation of the perpetrator or any other person. Now, that is describing child sexual abuse, but he also goes on to define that sexual abuse may be committed by an adult to another adult when the perpetrator is in a position of power or control over the victimized person. And again, here is the the concept where the victim of abuse is not consenting and one uses their power and their control to, to use them and to fulfill their sexual desires. And when the sexual abuse is perpetrated by an adult or an older child who is a blood or legal relative, it is officially referred to as incest or intrafamilial sexual abuse. He talks about sexual abuse as happening on a spectrum. So just because sexual abuse was not severe doesn't mean it wasn't abuse. And also it doesn't mean that it wasn't damaging. So when you talk about sexual physical contact, we usually think about an event where one has been forcefully taken and raped, but It can also go down to less severe types of physical contact, such as groping, touching of clothed breasts or buttocks or thighs or genitals. And so it's on this continuum of severity, noting that all inappropriate sexual contact is damaging. Now, of course, the more severe forms tend to lead to uh, more extreme trauma. But trauma is not only about the severity of the event. Trauma is also about how the person perceives that event. So that is especially good to note when we talk about sexual abuse that happens from sexual interactions, which are far harder to acknowledge because they do not involve physical touch and therefore do not seem as severe. So many times um, this might involve a subtle sexual invasion that leaves the victim wondering if it actually occurred or if it is a byproduct of their own distorted imagination. And 
And these are the ones that can be really messed up because you second guess yourself and you question yourself because you weren't touched at all. It can be a visual, verbal, or psychological interaction. So visual interaction could involve a situation where the child is forced or invited to watch sexually arousing scenes or pictures or is observed by the perpetrator in a state of undress that is arousing to the adult, for example. Now, Dr. Allender referred to a few different stories of his clients. Again, these can be quite triggering, so be careful as you listen through. So he talked about one client's father who used to leave pornographic literature in the bathroom before she would take a shower. And after she had begun to shower, he would enter the room and retrieve his porn magazines. And he'd literally linger for a moment to observe his daughter's uh, body silhouetted behind the shower door. Another client reported that while he was a teenager, he'd return home each day with a mixture of trepidation and excitement, wondering if his alcoholic mother would be drunk and naked or partially enclosed, lying on the living room couch. Each time he swore he would not look, but his teenage curiosity and growing sexual responsiveness to visual cues betrayed him. Now, would you call that a form of abuse or, or would you not refer to that as abuse? Sexual verbal interactions can also be equally abusive. Um, so you can have a situation where literally an older person can talk to a child in ways that are very uncomfortable and ask questions about their body parts and different areas that are just, you know, it's just really uncomfortable and feels violating to one's sexual identity. It, it can also come in the form of suggestive or seductive interactions. So um, one of the clients Dr. Allender worked with was a woman who recalled her disgust in being around her grandfather. Because every time she came around her grandfather, first of all, he would hug her in very uncomfortable ways, but he would also tell her things like, you're so sweet, I could eat you. Come here and let me taste your lips. Now, was he, would you consider that man to be silly and humorous and innocent or just slightly inappropriate? Or would you consider that to be sexually suggestive and abusive? Bear in mind that he would say these things when he was alone with a granddaughter. He'd never say them when they were not alone. And so when you look at these patterns and you see the violation that takes place, it's very subtle. And it can be hard to, um, it can be hard to identify. But oftentimes, abusers use these subtle and deceptive techniques. So you second guess yourself, and you don't identify it as abuse. A final category of sexual interaction is psychologically abusive, and this has an overlap with both verbal and visual sexual abuse, is when you are exposed to pornographic material at a young age. Or maybe you've been in an environment, and Dr. Karen talks about this in this episode, where you were in an environment where people were maybe having sex and, you know, they didn't care that you were there in the room. All those things can have a damaging effect, especially if you are a maturing child. And uh, Dr. Allender actually points out that sexually abusive words can produce the same damage as sexually abusive contact. 
So what is sexual abuse? Based on some of these definitions, it can be much broader than physical, severe violation of one's body. It literally can include verbal, visual, and psychological violations. I would encourage us to consider this as we explore our own story. And honestly, this has opened up a lot of thoughts in my mind of very clear memories that I'd gone through as a child where the the actions of an adult were very sexually questionable towards me. And I have never really looked at that as abuse. I've never really considered those stories. And um, even now, it's, it's, it's hard to, to really go into it. But I just want to I just want to share that oftentimes we can, we might live with the damaging effects of an experience that we've denied and not labeled as abuse. And in order to solve a problem, the first thing is to confront it. Of course, to confront it in a place of safety, it's good to confront it with somebody who has experience and knowledge in helping people navigate through these problems so that you're not just opening a box and, and, activating a trauma that you cannot deal with. Um, but I thought this would be helpful for us to really understand what can constitute sexual abuse. Now, I'd highly, highly recommend you guys go grab this copy of The Wounded Heart, Hope for Adult Victims of Childhood Sexual Abuse by Dr. Dan Allender. There's so many things I wanted to share in this book, but I want to get to the episode. He just dives into it like all the different questions that you might be having right now. I'm sure he addresses it partially, if not exhaustively. So I'd recommend you go grab that book if you want to read further. But anyways, let's go right to the episode and I'll see you on the other side. I'm so glad you you had the foresight to suggest that we do two parts because your story and the things you have to share just requires two episodes. We don't usually have two episodes with our guests, but this specific topic I think deserves uh, a lot of time and dedication. So I appreciate you spending the time. Absolutely. It is my pleasure, David. <laughs> awesome. So uh, today's session will uh, be a little bit different from, from last session. For those of you listening, we'll be now going more towards dealing with sexual trauma in adulthood, which I believe all of you listening are of adult age. I know, Dr. Karen, you've, you also had some experiences in your dating life, but I think it would be nice to also hear more from your medical perspective, your perspective as a therapist as well, how you've dealt with the effects that sexual trauma has on people, as well as how we can go about healing. Because at the end of the day, we want to end on a positive note and yes. see the positive and beauty and and all of this, despite some of the darker aspects. So um, I don't know where to start, but I think I want to start with this question because I heard this somewhere, and I don't know if you agree. Most people believe sexual trauma comes from abuse that you might have experienced that was physical abuse. So like maybe somebody touched you or you, somebody made contact with you in a sexual ray, right? Mm -hmm. But I've heard that sexual abuse can go beyond that to like simply a child being exposed visually to something or or audible or verbal. Like, is that true? 
So that can absolutely be true. You know, I think it's every parent's worst nightmare to have their kid barge into the room when they are having sex. And if that happens, that's not what we consider traditional sexual trauma. Usually that engenders a certain response from parents, which is, you know, get out my room or, you know, covering up what we're doing. However, there are children who are exposed to certain situations. They're living in certain situations where there is frequent sexual activity all around them. And not only are they witnessing it, uh, and, and we're talking about it's in a thoughtless way, where no one is considering that there is a child in the room being exposed to this type of activity. But it also puts children in the line of danger, especially as their bodies start to grow and develop. Because usually if, if a child is raised in that kind of environment, chances are the people who are there are not really considering children. They're not thinking about protecting children. And so it's much more likely for a child in that kind of setting to begin to experience the actual physical abuse. Mm. So, so that is the risk. Of course, there are so, there's sort of other situations, you know, where children are exposed to pornography and things like that. Um, sometimes unwittingly in in their parents' homes, they might happen upon a website or something that, you know, daddy was watching or something. And um, their thinking can certainly be skewed in that way as well. You know, and while while I'm saying this, I, you know, I, I use the word daddy, but we have to understand that, you know, there's another kind of sexual trauma that no one talks about perhaps because it's so deeply socially accepted. And that is the trauma inflicted upon young boys by older women. And that is something that I don't know how much data has been captured about that. I think it's it's difficult for young boys and men to speak up about these situations. And many times young boys are not mature enough to handle what is brought to them. They are learning their own sexuality and their their sexual drive often, you know, when a child is, you know, a boy is like 13 or 14, 15, they have, their sexual drive is very, very high and they're trying to explore, but they're also deeply vulnerable. Their brains have not fully developed. You're still going through what we call pruning of the brain and puberty and they are easily manipulated and preyed upon. So it's another piece of this to consider. Boys are exposed to pornography a lot in those age groups. In fact, it's it's almost a, a rite of passion, passage, but it's also not healthy to have this be in your introduction to viewing women. So, you know, just a, just a lot to unpack there in terms of the visual exposure of children to sexual activity. And yes, it can be very traumatizing. It can affect people's sexuality for decades. Um, it can impact the way they relate to their partner, most definitely. Mm -hmm. I think that for me, that was a 
interesting discovery because on the podcast that I was listening on it to, you know, the, the, the person shared about a story, I think it was of themselves or a friend when they were a child and when their parents were traveling, they, he would stay at a neighbor's house and mm-hmm. he remembers that the neighbor would intentionally like undress in, it was a woman, undress in front mm-hmm. of him, mm-hmm. almost in a way it's like she wants to be seen, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, he never processed that as sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, that was like, what's going on? Like, why, you know, but he never processed that. And then I think another aspect that makes it difficult is that even when people have gone through abuse at the time of, of, of or during the event, you might experience arousal. And because of that, it's almost like you convince yourself that's like, or you wanted it or like you were in control, like you're equally, you might even think you're responsible for that. And may, and maybe with guys, because guys are told that they're sexual, it's like, oh no, but you were aroused. So you must have wanted it. So that's not abuse. So especially if you're, you know, when you're a child, like how do you navigate that? So that, that's a, the other piece of this, right? And that's where we get into part of, you know, another layer mm. of why children don't speak out. That's sort of another layer. Then it's one thing to be violently assaulted, as I was. And it's another thing entirely to be groomed. So I think what you're talking about, you know, that whole issue of, you know, experiencing pleasure and in conflict with your, you know, your desire to get away from the situation that happens often within the context of grooming or dating. Um, For those who don't know what grooming is, grooming is uh, often perpetrated by someone who has a position of power uh, over a child So a family member, a friend, someone who's known to the family, the babysitter, you know, various people. Uh, So this person is let into the child's home, made familiar with the child and told, the child is told that this person is safe. In that context of, you know, assumed safety that this double message is handed to the child or to the person because, you know, date rape is often as well about a, a power differential, a power dynamic. People feel safe. They are performing, you know, I guess, sex-adjacent act, kissing and petting and things like that. And they're lulled into the state of safety. And so when the violence happens, when the act happens, the, things that, the thing that they don't want to happen, they develop this intense sense of internal conflict. And that's what happens with kids. Because believe it or not, kids are sexual beings. And I think there are things that we don't understand as a society, as a community, about little children and their sexuality. You know, tiny children explore their sexuality quite freely because they don't know any better. So... They learn from us 
these messages that, oh, no, this is a terrible thing. It's a common thing for one-year-olds and two-year-olds and three-year-olds to masturbate. That's very common. It's ubiquitous. And in the medical world, it's expected because they are little and they are exploring themselves. So masturbation, it carries a certain stigma for us. But really, the same way that a kid is going to explore their eyelashes and their eyes and they're going to pull at their hair, you know, the same way you see like a baby will like clutch its toes and pull on them. That is the same way that they touch their sexual organs. They touch their, they touch themselves. They touch their knees and their, you know, their bodies and they touch their vaginas. And especially, you know, or the penises. And especially when kids are potty training, those areas become an area of focus, right? It's like, you know, go sit on the potty, stay there until you poop, stay there until you pee pee. It's this, this whole thing. And so children are curious. And oftentimes parents are slightly horrified. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Yes. Right. And so again, that sends a message to your child. Wait, wait. I'm touching a part of my body and it's wrong. But, you know, if I tug my hair, no one says, what are you doing? But mm -hmm. if I touch my vagina, you know, there's a big to-do about it. Mm -hmm. um, or if I touch my penis, which is, is more apparent. Uh, mm -hmm. Because little little boys have erections. They do. Mm -hmm. And um, so that tends to be something that's more apparent mm -hmm. uh, than, let's say, a little girl touching her vagina. Um, and so it tends to shock parents who are not educated about these things. And some parents will immediately go to, this is something wrong. Mm. while the child still has all of those nerve endings and to them it feels good so the internal conflict can start right there mm. right so if a child has a healthy sense of self with parents who have the expectation that a little kid is going to explore his genitals or her genitals as part of exploring her world then that's great if you don't have that, it adds another layer of complexity to the issue. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so then you add to that this person who the child trusts. And depending on where in time, where in the child's development that person is added, there can mm -hmm. be different devastating effects. You know, kids move into, if we think about Eric Erickson's stages of human development, which is sort of more conventionally used now than Freud, but they have the same similar um, latency industry period. So you know, around like seven, seven, eight years old, kids go into a period of sexual latency. And that's where you have kids saying, oh, boys are terrible, girls are, you know, yeah. thing. they have cooties. It's like they hate each other. Right. They hate each other. Well, yeah. They run yeah, away. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, if mommy and daddy kiss in front of them, ew, look at what mommy yes. and daddy are doing. 
that's disgusting. You know, my daughter would see a Disney movie and she's, she's like just coming out of this because she's 11 now. So she'll yeah. see a Disney movie and she'll say, ew, they're kissing. That's disgusting. Yeah. I'm never going to kiss a boy. Right. Okay. And you're like, right, right. Mm-hmm. Whatever you say. <laughs> Whatever you say. <laughs> right. But, mm-hmm. um, but all of that is part of development. And it's that period of latency in industry right? Like where the sexuality kind of goes underground. And what's developing is more kind of like their academic minds, their processing speed, their, you know, development of, you know, how they're going to frame the world from a perspective of functioning in it. Mm -hmm. And so these kids begin to become really proficient at doing chores and understanding Mm. fairness and completing homework if they have to, even though they they hate homework still. To all the parents out there in podcast land, yeah, no, your kids are going to still hate homework. Um, But but they learn to manage Mm. all of these things. And it's it's very important for their process. And if sex and sexuality becomes a prominent part of their awareness during that time, then they are unsuccessful at completing mm-hmm. that latency stage. And that has a direct impact on brain development, literal neuron connections and things like that. For children who are younger, it's actually even worse. Now, children who are younger, they're not in that latency stage. So like I said before, like, Three, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, they are going to explore themselves. And they are going to explore their genitalia as part of themselves. And they are discovering at that time, touching my penis feels nice. Touching my vagina feels nice. And that's it. It's an exploration of their sex organs. It's not an exploration of sex. Right. Okay. Um, So those are two different two distinctions that need to be made. And it's very important for parents to make those distinctions. So if you come upon your son, you know, and he's pointing to his penis and saying, mommy, look, it's hard or, or whatever, you know, kids, uh, yeah. This right. is, Cause this, this is, is what re- kids do. This is real life stuff. I'm in a mommy's group and I actually got that from the group because it was one of the things, one of the mommies brought to the group. She was like, Oh my goodness, you know, my my four-year-old came up to me the other day with his, you know, pants off and he said, Mommy, look. I mean, he doesn't know what's going on. Right. He he has no idea why this is happening with his body and he's learning. It's new to mm-hmm. him. You know. Uh and so it when they come to you with these observations and questions. These are observations about their sexual organs, but these are not observations and questions about sex. Mm. The child has no sense of sex, doesn't know right. what it is. Not, I mean, there's, there's nothing in their wheelhouse unless they've been prematurely exposed to indicate to them, you know, that sex is what we know it to be. So we need to treat it as an exploration of part of their bodies. 
If children, you know, at these very young ages are introduced to sexual acts and, you know, they're, they're really sort of like horrific stories of even babies who, who don't even have a sense of themselves. I mean, they don't even know what their toes are. You know, when you're, when you're talking about that level, they, they are, babies operate on a very primal, very, very primal level. And perhaps we should put a pin in what I'm going to say to just discuss what I mean by primal level. So babies are seeking food, they're seeking safety, they're seeking love. That's what babies seek. Okay, so very primal level of need. And and I remember, you know, I mean, we can we can see this actually. There, there. Maybe you can even find it on YouTube videos. When when baby is introduced to mom after birth, if you sit baby on mom's chest, baby will find her breast. And I remember, I remember that happening with my daughter, who was very little when she was born. And I remember her one day, I didn't even I didn't know this at the time. I should have known, but I didn't for whatever reason. They don't teach us this in medical school. She started crawling up my chest and she must have been like two months old, three months old. So she's doing a worm, the worm crawl up my chest and flings herself over and latches on to me. And it shocked the living daylights out of me. But that's what babies are doing in the first few months of life. They, they are wanting to be fed they're wanting to be sheltered and they're wanting to be loved. And each of those components is critically important for their development, but they function on a very, very primal level. And so if the stimulation of the sexual organs begins to happen at these very, very young ages developmentally, children can develop actual mental retardation. Literal. When I say I mean diagnostically, IQ of seventy or lower. Literally, their brain does not develop well if they are if they are sexually abused at these young ages. And you know, there there are research case studies about children in these environments and the fact that their brains are misdeveloped. So, depending on where the point at which children are exposed, that it can have really serious neurocognitive effects on kids. So I know we strayed off the point a little bit, but overlaying that on sort of the question that you asked about where we were getting into grooming and, you know, that sort of conflicting, those conflicting feelings especially in latency, kids are much, much more aware of themselves. So they know that there is something wrong. They know that they are being made to feel things that they shouldn't be feeling right now, that feel unnatural to them, but those things still feel good. That throws the child into a complete swirl of conflict. You know, their brain is telling them this is horrible, but also this is good. And to have a child in a position to have to wrestle with something like that, you know, an, an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 10-year-old, they don't have the capacity to work that through. If you think about it, 
you know, even grown grown adults, right? Yeah. Who are, let's say, are in a date rape situation. Yeah, yeah. I actually wanted to ask about that because it's though they feel some similar similar conflicts as well in that mm-hmm. context as well. Yeah, a lot of date rape is not reported. People don't even process it as rape. You know, in my own date rape experience, you know, which happened when I was 21, I was 21 and it was actually my first sexual experience. And I did not process it as rape, even though I felt so many of the characteristics of trauma that come along with it. Mm-hmm. I also processed it as this was my boyfriend. I was in a what we call compromising position yeah. because we were kissing or whatever. And so therefore I brought this on myself. And so even though I had said no, actually not not just said no then, but several times in the past. And I had said to him, you know, these are my principles. This is what I stand for. I do not want to have sex until I'm married, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Even though I had made those things clear, the situation, and this is honestly what trauma does, the situation was set up, was created in me a sense of disbelief of my own self. So I was questioning, okay, did I did I not make it clear? Maybe I didn't make it clear enough that I don't want this. Maybe, you know, maybe I didn't say no loud enough. Maybe I didn't say no clearly enough. Maybe at the time when he perpetrated the act, why why didn't I kick and scream? You know, why did I just sort of lie there and freeze? There's so many things going through my mind. But at the time that it was happening, my response was a freezing and what we call depersonalization. And again, so to those of you who don't know what this is, it's actually depersonalization is one of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress and acute stress. And the difference between acute stress and post-traumatic stress is time. So in an acute stress situation, this can happen very quickly, where a person begins to feel removed and separate from their body and from what is being done to them. And so I literally felt as though sort of in my, my mind could not handle what was happening to me. And so it literally felt to me like I had left my body and I was looking down on this person being forced into a situation that she didn't want, but that I was apart from it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like a coping. That's how your body coped. That's how you coped with it. Precisely so. It was a coping mechanism. And so it was almost like I was hovering, sort of looking down, because this couldn't possibly be happening to me because I had said so many times that it was not something that I wanted, that it was not something that I was ready for, that it was not something that I agreed with 
in terms of my spiritual beliefs. And my boyfriend at the time had indicated that he understood all of that and that he respected me. All, all of that had happened. All of those conversations had happened. So when this violence was perpetrated, not only could I not name it, I could not name it as rape because mm. I was in what was supposed to be a loving, secure relationship. So how could this person possibly do this? Like this, that, that doesn't make sense. I also had no voice. I froze. I didn't fight. Mm-hmm. And I dissociated. Completely. And these are, these are things that we don't really talk about. And it's one of the reasons that it is so tremendously difficult for women to achieve justice in these mm-hmm. situations is that we do not consider that trying to fight off, you know, a, an a, a attacker or trying to fight off someone when you're, I mean, date rape has a whole different, it's a whole different wheelhouse. You know, if if I had been attacked, then I think my fight response would have kicked in. I would have been trying to fight and run and, and do all of that. But this is, was supposed to be someone with whom I could be safe. So not every rape involves fighting on the part of the women. Mm. Okay. But women are asked in the court, if this was rape, why didn't you fight? Oh, my days. Right. And the whole idea of trauma having a very wide range of reactions is not considered by the legal system. Yeah. And yeah. it's not considered by the general population. And so what wow. you have is women who have been through these experiences sitting there saying to themselves, I could not possibly have been raped. I didn't fight. Wow. I could not possibly have been raped because right at the end, I didn't say no. I just sort of let it happen. When in truth and in fact, she had said no several times throughout the the whole scenario and realized that that was not being listened to and that she was being overpowered and literally froze. Mm. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, yeah. it's a complicated response and that happened i mean if grown adult women if i at 21 completely lost my voice and believe me i am not somebody who is without a voice okay i was brought up to have a voice yes <laughs> my family involved me in family discussions from the time I knew myself, my uncles, my aunts, my grandparents, my mom, you know, we would have all these discussions at the table and, you know, whatever Karen had to say was valid. Even, you know, I mean, a five-year-old having a discussion about 
Hey guys, unfortunately, while we were recording, something happened with the recording platform where we had to switch over to another platform and the most unexpected thing happened. I saved the remainder of the second part of this recording locally on my laptop and it got damaged with water and I got a new laptop and I wasn't able to recover that last part. So unfortunately, we'll have to wait till next week to complete our discussion on this issue. Thank you so much for bearing with us. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next week for the final part in this series with Dr. Karen. Bye-bye.